What is evidence? Evidence provides a why behind our plan of care. For the best outcomes for our patient. Elevate our practice to best standards. Giving the patient the most optimal care that we can. Is what guides us. There's been a lot of growth in our field. Things are progressing. It's different than what we saw 50 years ago. Welcome to Evidence Elevates, helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Welcome to the Evidence Elevates podcast. My name is Lauren Snowden, and I am a member of the Moving Forward Task Force. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Gail Jensen for the podcast. Dr. Jensen is Vice Provost of Learning and Assessment, Dean Emerita, and Professor of Physical Therapy and holds a secondary appointment in the Department of Medical Humanities at Creighton University. She is known nationally and internationally for scholarly contributions in expert practice, clinical reasoning, professional ethics, and interprofessional education. Dr. Jensen is author or co-author of over 90 publications in peer-reviewed journals and has co-authored 13 books. She led the research team that completed a national study of excellence and innovation in physical therapist education, funded by the American Physical Therapy Association. Dr. Jensen is a Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association, a Distinguished Scholar Fellow in the Physical Therapy Academy of the National Academies of Practice, and has received numerous distinguished awards throughout her career. Welcome, Gail, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start off with um, discussing your work on the National Study of Excellence and Innovation. In that paper, you talk about adaptive learners, and you've done a lot of work in the area of master adaptive learners. So I want to start with really um, delving into that. And can we start with defining um, a master adaptive learner and what are the characteristics of a master adaptive learner? What's important in, in the concept of a master adaptive learner is really understanding what it means to be an adaptive learner, an adaptive expert. So the, and it's, it's not uh, rocket science in that way. So how do you help a learner become an expert learner to really be engaged in learning how to learn? And that's for on all sides of the equation. That goes for the learner, that goes for the educator, whether you're in the classroom or the lab or the clinic. Uh, it's, it's very important. How do we, how do we really uh, look at problems and uncertainty, and we can say, you know what, there's a gap in my knowledge here. Here's what I know, but here's what I don't know. And I'm going to go after that. I'm going to see this as an opportunity for learning. And then I'm going to engage in that learning, and, and I'm going to try it out, and I'm going to assess it and see how I did and continue to learn. It, it sounds simple, uh, but what we need is people who can, educators who can facilitate that through supervision, through mentoring, through coaching. Uh, th those are the kinds of things that, that really help facilitate the emphasis on learning. That's the key concept, the emphasis on learning. And, and we know that the complexity of our world today in, in everywhere, we need to be able to adapt. The pandemic showed us that we need to adapt. So we need adaptive learners, leaders, we need adaptive learners. We need adaptive faculty <laughs> mm -hmm. because it's not it's not predictable. I think that's great. And if I might say one more thing, and, and that is uh, the the concept of of adaptive expertise, which is connected to being a 
adaptive learner. So we want we want experts who, you know, it's not getting a credential, it's not getting clinical specialization, it's not how much status you have. It's that you can demonstrate that you're fairly efficient in doing the kind of routine work that you do in a very efficient, effective way. But then when you're challenged with this uncertainty, you have the creativity and the innovation to come up with novel solutions. And that goes back to this concept uh, that uh, Donald Schoen wrote about for you know reflective, the ability to be a reflective practitioner. That's, that's the ability to work in that kind of swampy lowland of uncertainty mm -hmm. and come up with novel solutions. So we need that more than ever. Yeah. When um, we think about the adaptive learner and somehow it's inherent in the word a little bit, there's this idea of change um, and being open to change and, and you said novel solutions, uncertainties. Um, how do we teach students that? Um, how do we teach our clinicians that? How do we teach that that flexibility? Well, I'd, I'd start by saying that it's we have to role model it. Mm -hmm. So teachers, educators, clinicians, we have to role model. And I think I think many many master clinicians do role model that. So uh, and and many expert teachers uh, role model that. But then we we also have to uh, we have to think about what it is a learner needs in terms of, uh, you know, we, th uh, we throw around these terms about, well, it's about resilience, uh, but there is something called the, the battery power in the master adaptive learner, which is, is very interesting. It, it's how uh, a coach uh, or a mentor can help the learner be curious. Be curiosity is very important, it's, it, especially if you're going to go after uncertainty. And then how can you uh, be motivated to go after that gap in your learning, seek out resources? Uh, and, and then are you resilient? And do you have that growth mindset? So these are attributes. Uh, some of them come from emotional intelligence. It's, it, it's really looking at the learner in a, a much more robust way. It's just not about what you stuff in your head or what technique you can do in your hands. It's, it, it's how you really look at learning as, a, as an ongoing, very exciting thing to do. It becomes part of you. <laughs> I think that's amazing to hear. And I think that's something we try and do early and often education. I think it starts with the educator and moves forward. And um, you said two things that really stood out to me. One, you talked about technical skills of the hand and while well, maybe we're not getting, um, I don't know, stuck in some technical skills and how to seek resources. So can you talk through um, what that might look like? Because I think our our task force talks about that a lot of how do you seek resources for practices that evolve? Yeah, so let me let me make another uh, uh, concept here. I don't have my whiteboard, but I'll go after it here. <laughs> uh, so the the other thing that's very important in when we talk about learning, and you know where's your gap, is the the uh, challenge we have in that we sit too much on the surface of learning. So we look at what's called the kind of uh, information, the procedure, uh, the skill, and we don't get to deep learning. And deep learning has to do with the concepts, the theory that really connects the learning in a very important and powerful way. And if we 
if we're not facilitating learners to engage in that deep learning, we're just going to be at the surface, and uh, that's that's um, that's going to cause some issues, and it, it's going to keep us from continuing to learn. You know, we all know that memorization for students, for learners, is just you know, there's a that's a dead end, right? right. But it's that deep learning that helps you understand and helps you continue to grow. Why, why did this work? How did this work? What does theory tell me about this? Uh, what what should I stop doing? <laughs> what do I need to, need to move forward? So it's that's that's very important. Yeah, I think you brought up two things we talk about a lot: um, the idea of what do I stop doing? What do I continue to do? You brought that up because, as you said, we're flooded with information and there's so much coming at us, and we're trying to get to this deeper learning. Um, but before we can even do that, are we able to do that with all that other information? And do we maybe have to be conscious of of not adding too much that maybe is not working and we need to stop doing we've thought that through? Less is more. <laughs> That's what I would say. And I, I think we we suffer, uh, you know, we're not the only ones uh, in, in the health professions, but we suffer for adding more to the curriculum, more and more and more. And we add without removing. <laughs> And that's on us. So I want to delve a little bit more into the idea of professional formation and identity and specifically talk about that idea of community of practice. Um, can you define community of practice for us? Yeah, the, the community of practice is a simple way of, of talking about situated learning Um uh, it, it, in that it's it's learning that occurs in a community and the learning that occurs in the community of practice is very powerful and why is it powerful we know it sticks and why does it st and there's theory to explain this situated cognition situated learning uh Laven winger uh, uh, wrote about this and it's it's common to every kind of apprenticeship model. It's a common in health professions education. So as I understand, and I can envision it, um, it may be more difficult to grow or change when you don't have clinicians or a community of practice. So if someone's looking to change, grow, learn, if they don't have a community of practice, that potential is not as as robust. Can you yeah, I, yes, you know, I, I, I would say that. And I, I think it makes the case for... Uh, how much we need in our in our communities, our you know our faculty communities, to have a we need clinicians, we need you know we need mm -hmm. diversity there, right. in all in all ways because you you can't be removed. I don't think you can be removed from clinical practice, uh, and be the only one in, teaching students. I you don't have the credibility, and as learners, they they sniff that out in a heartbeat. <laughs> right. Now that's not to say, but I think you need the back and forth, mm -hmm. and and I and I think everybody learns and grows from that, because I I think we all need to be you know it's the old adage, you know is it really is everything created in the academy, and <laughs> and then that moves practice? No, is everything created in practice and that moves education? No, <laughs> it's a two way street. So the closer we are and more integrated, the, it's just a win-win. Yeah, I think you're describing a lot of what um, things related to knowledge translation has been such a focus of, totally. of the groups, right? So the ideas of these great things are happening and whichever direction they're, they're coming from, but you have often things are happening in the academy and we're saying, how do we 
get that evidence, that information out in the realistic, practical, meaningful, um, outcome-oriented way in the clinic. Yeah, that's where, you know, the concept of implementation science has, this isn't a session on implementation science, but it's a powerful concept and idea. And uh, I think it even has a lot of value uh, for us in, in education in health professions education. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're speaking to things that that we're looking to bridge that gap on and why we thought you're a good resource is we have this, you know, science behind certain things we are doing and where is it not making that link and where are maybe clinicians in this community uh, maybe not embracing those ideas and what do we do to make that link? We are supposed to be this in concert with each other. And how do we make those links when there is a mismatch of where you're trying to implement is these science, the evidence, the information, and there's, and there's a gap. Yeah. And I think, I think very important, this is an implementation science concept, is to find out from where's their struggle. Where are the barriers? Where are the difficulties? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's an important, important element in, in really understanding the context of the situation. Mm -hmm. We did, we're fortunate. We did some survey work to try and find some of the barriers and some of it relates to what we're talking about here. And, and the word identity popped out. The professional identity is tied to a, a thing, <laughs> a named thing versus, you know, so I think that's part of it. And maybe not having a um, a valued or collaborative community of practice to change together. Yeah, the, the other, the other uh, item I'd mentioned, we, I'm involved with some groups doing, looking at residency education. And in one of the findings that is emerging is how, how by having residency programs in clinics, in clinical settings, it is, you know, raising all boats. So mm-hmm. it's bringing a level of energy and enthusiasm and I think evidence of learning, uh, you mm-hmm. know, that kind of master adaptive learning, it's exciting. Uh, uh, and and leadership and administrators talk about that. That's that's a return on investment for a residency program that goes well beyond money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think that speaks to your idea of all levels of learner and Correct. how they can absolutely. Do you have ideas on a larger scale of again? We're looking at big picture initiative and how does this information get out? How to are there ways that people who don't have that close community, again, we we have in some of our data we've looked at in our survey, people who didn't have other clinicians to speak to maybe weren't comfortable with contemporary practices um, or implementing evidence that they know to be effective because they just didn't know how. How do we help those people to still, you know, move forward and change with with as information changes in healthcare? I think that's a good question for you, Lauren. Can I turn that question back <laughs> to you? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question. I, you know, I think that technology uh, certainly, certainly gives us, you know, the the ability to reach out and connect. You know, we're not limited by distance. But I, I think, I think being able to shine the light for clinicians on not not to not to be judgmental at mm-hmm. all, to really take uh, the kind of appreciative inquiry approach that. Um, uh, and turn it into a problem or an inquiry. Let's let's figure this out together. Where are you struggling? So it it, it becomes. It's not a. Oh, are you still doing that? Mm-hmm. Finding a way to uh, engage in a collaborative problem solving and um, think about creating new knowledge. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier the term "seek resources" of 
you know, those, those people who are adaptive learners might uh, reach out more maybe to find those things or even see all the work that's being done by others. You know, there's, yeah. there is expertise and there are communities at a higher level, maybe in our profession that are doing some of the work and yeah. how do we get that to the masses? And, and I do think, you know, you sometimes hear that, well, uh, some clinics say they like having students because students will come with new idea, you know, cutting edge, whatever. But students mm -hmm. don't have, they don't have the experience, the clinical. So there is, there is a way, I think, to, to get that kind of triad or whatever to, mm -hmm. together that's, uh, that's a, that becomes learning for everyone um, so that there's, there's not a judgment in that, but there's uh, the student may have something, but the clinician offers this. So, but to have some, create some models for that, I think would could be pretty exciting, or create some some cases that take different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, maybe maybe a helpful tool. I, uh, you know, do we ever look at a case as well? This is a case of okay, how do we deconstruct this case and move it forward like a master adaptive learner would? I I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just brainstorming here, but yeah. <laughs> you talked um, before, and I want to circle back to the idea of um, you're mentioning students and and that kind of connection between the two, and the idea of dissonance between the student and the clinic. Um, so whether we're talking student clinic or in this case clinician to clinician, um, what can we do in those scenarios when they are seeing those having those differences of opinion? So you're saying the student comes in and they have this great idea, and then they're working with a clinician who's maybe not connected to it and doesn't have a rationale other than that's how I've done it. What do they do in that scenario? Well, I yeah, <laughs> it's a good question. I I think uh, that the the burden should be on the educational program to uh, how do we prepare students for those kind of situations? Because I I I think part of professional formation is is how we respect one another. Mutual respect is really important and how you demonstrate that. So there are, you, you know, there are ways to say things and ways not to say things. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I tell students, there's, you can always ask questions, but the way you ask a question is is very, very important. So I, to me, that's, that's a part of their professional formation in demonstrating uh, respect. And I think we saw that, I, I'll give you an example. You know, when we first started the, uh, DPT program here at Creighton. We were the first, right? And we had mm -hmm. we were sending students out, and we had some issues with students going out and saying, "Well, I'm going to get a DPT, and you've got a master's." And so we had to be intentional about intellectual humility, what it meant to be humble, and how important it was, in that we're all part of the same profession and what that means in terms of respect. That's mm -hmm. powerful and important. Very important. Yeah. No, and I think when you mention, um, again, as a DC, that's certainly important to me to communicate well. I think when you mention the struggle students have, and we've we've heard this from um, information we've heard about students kind of matching their clinical instructors, and this goes back to the community of practice too. What about when you have a community of practice that's really entrenched, or a CI that's really not open to it, and a student is coming in with that information and then they back off and then they maybe drift back. How do we avoid those things? Well, that that could be, you know, there's the concept of cognitive dissonance and that what can happen is you can, you know, send your graduate out and they have, 
they've done well and they they end up in a clinical setting where where they're uh, there's very much kind of uh, routine practice going on uh, and and they have this cognitive dissonance so they'll either adapt to that or they'll leave mm-hmm. and the question is you know your question I think is can we do something to facilitate so so it seems to me that could be an opportunity for uh, faculty development the and and how can the program the educational program help to if if that setting is open to develop and, and offer some some faculty development in some way, I mean there there is some connection through a CAPTI accreditation for how we mm-hmm. how we work with our clinical communities. But if there's no you know, if there's no receptivity, there's no then I think you look at is this an appropriate site for our students? Mm-hmm. I mean I think that's the other. I I can tell you that I'm sensitive to students. I have students do free writes on before they start the ethics our ethics class uh, based on their last clinical. And if I if there are some of these free writes that demonstrate some issues that I I share that with the clin ed team mm-hmm. to do some follow up. Yeah, I think that's we've realized that again personally in my role and then larger on our task force role is we are. Yeah. Students are being maybe armed with these resources and these these yeah. um, documents and ideas and use this, and then we give them those resources and maybe they struggle to implement them on the back end. And and yeah. how can we help them yeah. help others to try and elevate all all the work we're doing? We were talking before about um, just things starting at the educational program, whatever whatever that information is. So the information starting there, the training of students starting there, the appropriate way to share information there. Um, when we think about that piece, you have really this energy and passion for innovation and and have (laughs) had a career where you've discussed this. Can you share any of your personal experiences with the process of changing your curricula? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure I've been totally successful. (laughs) (laughs) Shows you if it's hard for you, it's hard for everybody. Well, yeah. And it's, I, I can tell you, I, I, uh. I was I was socialized, you know, it's in my it's in my DNA. It's in my, you know, PT identity DNA from Stanford that mm-hmm. uh, we were always changing the curriculum. But, the, you know, the curriculum is people. I mean, it's not necessarily what's on paper. The power of the curriculum is really in those role modeling interactions, expectations. So it goes well beyond what's on paper. But curriculum to me has to it's dynamic. And and you, that's why you've got to connect curriculum with assessment mm-hmm. of student learning because you've got to say, okay, this isn't working. How are we going to evolve? And it doesn't mean we can't stop do anything until we have our captive visit. It's like that's baloney. <laughs> so I so part of this is how we get bogged down in our structures, and I think we've just got to find ways to say. You know, we want to have the best learning environment possible. We want to be master adaptive learners mm-hmm. too. So I, I think sometimes there's a, you know, if it's not broken, why fix it? Uh, and mm-hmm. to me, you can tell, and we, we found this in our in our uh, national study. We found it in spades. I mean, we would go and, and have an opening meeting with the faculty and we'd ask them a simple question. What, what is excellence in innovation? you know, give us some examples. And they would talk for an hour, an hour and a half, just keep talking. And one thing that came out is the high expectations. They they, they 
resonate off each other. The energy they have about bringing in new things, moving things along, changing things. They mm-hmm. th- that that was constant. It doesn't mean that you're th- they're throwing out the curriculum all the time, but it's constantly evolving. So there's a level of culture and energy that and high mm-hmm. expectations that's that's present. Yeah. Uh, the article, that 2022 article in physical therapy about the master adaptive learner actually used that term. They said building educational cultures of change. So it's that yep. culture. Yep. Um, and they also, that article talked about being vigilant to avoid, you know, anchoring to traditional practices and um, employing evidence to re- reduce that unwarranted variation in curricula. Um can you give me your thoughts on that piece? Well, I think that, yeah, I think that's related. You know, we've had many, many of our colleagues ask for, when are we going to get some some real performance standards, get some kind of, of, of uh, continuum of standards? And that's where the move to competency-based education and the assessment through entrustable professional activities could really help us uh, with that. That's, that's really, uh, I think, long it 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 would it, it's going to be a process that that's mm-hmm. that's for sure you know i just i just finished uh doing the the kind of proof edits on the sarasoli talk i gave last year so that should be out sometime uh right. but i i've got a lot in there about exactly what i've talked about about curriculum about the master adaptive learner and it 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 is in the people I, I can't mm-hmm. emphasize enough. It it is in we can have these standards, but you've got to have the leadership. You've got to have the people to really make it happen. And that's uh, that's that's added attitudes. Right. <laughs> you know, just like we we find you know students not necessarily when they go in the clinic is it what they know or or what the you know knowledge or skill. Often it's attitudes, and sure. I think it's the same thing in faculty. Yeah. <laughs> but this is where the connection. Go. The connection with the clinic. I mean, the 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 better our bridge, the more excitement I think we can we can feed off each other. Yeah, We're part of each other. We're part of a community. A hundred percent. Am I interpreting correctly? When we think about endocrine education, a lot does start with what the scientific evidence available to them is, and that's the starting point, so that you even know how to direct what these activities look like. Sure, you know, evidence is 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 very important but remember there there are multiple sources of evidence right, mm-hmm. right. and and you know we did, we found this Lori hack jan choir k shepherd myself in the in our expert practice study so and and it and it's in the other models too about that patient preferences this context you can't throw that away that's really really important so we've got to think about evidence in a broader sense and mm-hmm. and Master clinicians are very good at using these multiple sources of evidence, multiple sources of knowledge, and 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 truly listening to the patient mm-hmm. and understanding that lived experience together with with evidence, other kinds of evidence. And, and I think what happens with students, certainly in the clinical reasoning area is, and some of it is the way we design learning experiences. They go out and chase and they find evidence in literature and they say, oh, here's the answer. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) It's not that simple. Yeah, I think students where we try and give them when we talk about seeking resources is take some of the information of some of the work that's been done for you of putting all those pieces together so that you do work at the highest level information as opposed to running for 
I yeah. found one article that did this from a low yeah. level journal that someone said yeah. that's a trap for students, for all clinicians, I think, though. Yeah. And clinical practice guidelines are very helpful, but again, they're not the answer, right? Mm -hmm. They're they give you guidance. They're guidelines. Yeah. Right. I think we have we're fortunate in uh in our profession and all the in all the practice acts, but in get neuro, we've had a lot of guidelines come out in the past few years that have helped direct practice in a way that people had a starting point that they didn't had before maybe about what was working, which is I think a great value for the clinicians, newer and experienced, who yeah. maybe were trying to find their way and trudge their way through the thousands of pieces of information out in the field. Totally, totally. it's it, it's an, ex, an essential piece of evidence for sure. It comes down to the idea about how can we do the best for the patient, and I wonder how these those two things intertwine. Of um, you know, with that patient being that important source of evidence and the, the science being it, and and our expertise, and how do we make sure we are being advocates and melding that for them when maybe they don't have a, a good understanding of all the information out there. How do, how do we help them um, understand, you know, and be part of the experience? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's the million dollar question. I think <laughs> when we, particularly when we think about social determinants of health and all the upstream factors and, and you may do the, best intervention, but there may be all these other things that are going to come into play. So that goes to the the concept of moral agency. So what mm -hmm. is the therapist's role as a moral agent? To A moral agent is someone that takes an action that can make a difference in the outcome. Uh, so finding out, uh, connecting with the, you know, community resources it's it's these other things of of once they once they leave the PT session what right. uh, you know what what is going to happen and they need uh, access to food and all these other things which is you know our our healthcare systems is broken but what is it right. that we can do around these social determinants of health it's and I think we do have spheres of influence mm -hmm. um, yeah when you think about that piece, you know, you talk about moral agency and again, uh, how, how can learners, clinicians, students, I believe is where you spoke about it in a talk, but how can they take action and try and do something when they see something's wrong? Well, that's, that's very important. It, and it's one of my learning outcomes in my course is that they, <laughs> they absolutely know what it means to be complicit and complicit means you, you don't do anything and it be, right. it, so that no no action becomes an action. So if you see something uh, that that is causes you moral distress and you know is not right, you say something. You say it in a way that's respectful. But if you see somebody that's um, and and students are uh, quite they have very good uh, moral compasses early on. They you know sometimes what happens is clinicians get jaded, but students mm -hmm. are generally pretty. Ooh that. That that doesn't seem right to me. Mm -hmm. Why did they say that, or why are they talking about that patient like that? Now, sometimes mm -hmm. you know, and there's been a lot of work done in medical, in uh, emergency rooms about the kind of language that's used as a way to you know to blow off uh, steam or a way to cope. And it's uh, there should be zero tolerance on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, when you look at the of, of students being the the person who you're saying, see something, say something, do those things. 
where can educators support them in that when they are in the clinic, but they're still part of the educational program? Yeah, I, well, I think clinical educators are are pretty good and the DCEs are quite good and they often get emails or calls, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. Often. Uh, yeah, Very often, often. <laughs> often. So I, I, you know, I think to have a, a strategy or a, a fallback for that. Or, the, you know, the other thing is if they're in the clinic with other colleagues, if, if they have, if it's not, you know, peer-to-peer kind of strategies mm-hmm. can be helpful too. So I think helping learners know that, you know, it's okay to have some support peer-to-peer. It may be yeah. safer in some ways. So the last thing I just wanted to get your perspective on is um, thinking as we move ahead, how can we as educators uh, really be those responsible educators we spoke about and equip our students for the ever-evolving healthcare field they're in and going to continue to be in? That's a tough question. And I I, I would say to me, it, it fits in the, um, the central importance of professional formation of that. It's, it's beyond identity. It, it, it is... Um, it is embracing the profession and your your sense of a physical therapist because you you love the work and you're committed to the role you have in in promoting health uh, and in your care about patients and uh, your love of the human body and your love of the human being. I mean, both those things. It's not just about the body. Uh, if you don't understand the human being, you're not going to get very far. So I, I think to me, it's that essence of, of it's you know you're you're a physical therapist for a lifetime. So I think if you get that centered, it, mm-hmm. it, you can do so much more, and, and you and you and you'll be, you'll never stop. And the thing about the adaptive learner, the math for adaptive learner is you know, learning is, is energizing, and exciting. You want to do it. You know, you're never going to stop learning. Learning stops in the graveyard. And that's, that's an old Jesuit saying. <laughs> it does. And, and, and so it's that, I, I, you know, I think I reflect on my own self. It's uh, people know me as a physical therapist. They don't know me as, oh yeah, she's an administrator. Oh yeah, she does this or she does that. No, Gail, she's just a physical therapist. That's who I am. And, uh, and, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, it's great. It's a great profession. Uh, and we can do, uh, there's a lot of work to be done and we can do a lot of good. And certainly in your area, in the neuro area. Oh, I have such respect for, uh, for my colleagues that work in the area because um, it's, it's not, it's not easy. And we really need experts in that area for sure. Wonderful. Well, Gal, thank you. It's really been a pleasure. I'm so happy we got to speak this way and conferences recently and all that you share. We, uh, our other task force members said you're a visionary and I think you would, you would never say that. You would say I'm just Gail, but you really are are wonderful that way. Thank you for your insight. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media or find our website at neuropt.org.
That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.